Why don't you read 1 Peter verse 3 with me? We'll go to verse 9. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, can never spoil, and can never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And all these things you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even, though you don't, and even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Who wants to look like that? I want to look like that. How you guys doing? Sweet. I'm Tyler, by the way. I probably should introduce myself. I see a lot of people I don't know. So, hey. Uh, Victor Frankl, he is, uh, was a survivor of the Auschwitz concentration camp. He wrote a book called The Man's Search for Meaning. You've probably heard Chris Venon speak of it plenty. It's one of his favorites. But in his book, he chronicles his horrendous experience in Auschwitz as a Jewish inmate. He was tortured. He was beaten to the brink of death. He wasn't given enough food, wasn't even given enough clothes to survive the harsh winter. His toes literally became frostbitten. And people all around him were dying, dropping like flies, if not for the heinous living conditions, definitely for the meaningless mass murder of Jews. His father died, his mother died, his brother died, and eventually his wife died in the concentration camp. But you got to wonder, how could you ever survive that? How could you come out of something like that? And even if you could, if you could get out of it, is it even worth it? Like when you have seen the pit of what humanity can do, the depths we can reach, could you even possibly live a sort of normal life after that? I don't know if I could. But in his time at the concentration camp, he noticed there were two kind of prisoners in there. The one were the people who lost all meaning and hope while they were there. And they usually died. But then there were those who saw their circumstances as a challenge. A challenge to overcome because they had a why to survive for. But what was the why? Was it family? Was it work to be done? Was it experiences to be had? Maybe it was their faith. But here's what Victor leaves us with. You must, this is speaking to everyone, you must Find meaning in your sufferings and in your life. That's his call to us. You must find meaning in your sufferings and your life. Tim Keller speaks of Frankel's experience like this. There is no way to get through life if you can't get through sufferings. And there is no way to get through your sufferings if you don't have a living hope, something to give you meaning. So how about that for an introduction? Yeah.
That's deep. That's heavy. But that is the context we're preaching into today. Peter calls it a living hope. And so he writes this, but to whom is he writing is the question. Now, Chris covered it a little bit last week, but for the sake of just regrouping us and going there together, uh, we're going to begin 1 Peter for the next 10 weeks. And Peter is writing to two kinds of people. And here's how we know this. There's, there's the one hand, we see a constant theme of suffering all throughout the book. And you can't flip a page without suffering, suffering, suffering. It's very present. Maybe it's persecution, but it's, it's very nuanced. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's definitely exile. We know that for sure. Uh, Peter's writing to both Jewish Christians who would have been physically exiled from their home, from Judea. So there's that. But then he's, he's writing to Gentile Christians, people who would have had no faith in, in at least the, you know, the Jewish God before. And it's, it's my understanding that as he writes to these exiles and he's writing to them in persecution or suffering, however you want to look at it, this probably wasn't the Roman candle era. If you're familiar with that, it's, it's literally the the tortured name of when Nero lit Christians on fire and would light the city and light his parties with Christians. That's probably not the moment we're preaching into, or that Peter is at least. There's no talk of local arrests. There's no talk of being on trial legally. There's no conversations of execution. But what most modern scholars do believe is that this was probably much more of a verbal abuse than a physical abuse. It was probably... Uh, much more likely that you were experiencing a social ostracism from your neighbors, from your families, from your cities, than having to hide for your life in the catacombs. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Pope Gregory VII, he said this, I have loved justice and hated iniquity, therefore I die in exile. He looked different to the people around him, and that was cause for exile. So whether you were a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian or now reading this, both looked vastly different, at least in terms of their values, of their morals, of their ethics, of their faith, than the world around them. And I think that's where we start to find ourselves wrapped up in this story. Could anyone agree? We should look a little bit different from the world around us. We named this series Postcards from Babylon. And it's named after a book that I really love uh, by Brian Zond, whether you like him or love him, whatever. Uh, but essentially, his book is about this. He has this entire goal throughout the whole thing to call Christians back to a radical devotion of Jesus. Shocking. Jesus. To quit our love affair with nationalism, with exceptionalism, with secularism, with tribalism, and to be people who are devoted to Jesus. And Peter's doing the same thing right here. He's sending postcards, if you will, from Rome to the exiled and to the suffering. And he's riding into a moment that is an age-old trend. We see the same thing right now. But if you're part of our tribe, we'll protect you. If you're in, you're in. But if you're outside of our tribe, if you believe differently than us, then you're the enemy. He says later on in the book that it's probably one of the most important things for American Christians to understand that America is not a sort of 
biblical Israel. In other sense, it's not a, you know, God's promised land and chosen people. It's actually much more of a biblical Babylon. We live in an empire. We do. We, we say, in God we trust, it's our motto, and yet we have invested the most money of any nation in the history ever in artillery and defense. But in God we trust. We live, that's quiet. We live in a moment that isn't specifically, I knew this was going to be tough. We live in a moment that isn't specifically unique, but it is, it's extremely unfortunate that we say our faith centers us on a high moral stance, on an ethical framework, yet we endorse national leaders on both sides who endorse the exact opposite. Wrapped up in all this, we live in a cancel culture where we want to scathe people and lock them behind the prison doors of our rejection, and we have no culture of forgiveness, at least in the mainstream. So both sides, man, we're all playing the game together. Now, little story. I love the street I'm on, Albert Place, Costa Mesa, right behind the Alibaba. Hit it up. <laughs> and uh, I love my street. I go on walks every single morning. And it's been the best, but mostly to just wake me up out of my hot, my fog, my haze, whatever you want to call it, that I'm in in the mornings. But I've gotten to meet a lot of my neighbors, and they are amazing people. I love them to death. Uh, it was like having a little puppy when I had my leg brace on. They just all wanted to talk. But they're, they're all amazing people. But here's what happens. As I get to know them, as I get to talk to them, I've learned that they don't talk that much to each other. They, but they all have sly comments about one another a little bit. So here's the deal. They don't talk to them, I talk to them, but they all argue a ton with their flags. So, gigs up, I live on a flag street, or at least I especially did in the middle of all the crazy stuff of the last year and a half. But, you know, I would walk up and down the street every morning, and I would see my neighbors arguing with one another with their flags, and it's amazing. I mean, like, literally within a week, They've got their new flag up for the exact cultural moment that just happened the night before. It's amazing. But they would argue with one another. You know, sometimes I'd walk by and I'd think like, you know, I get it. I get why they're flying that flag. And I guess I, I can understand why they're flying that flag. And then other days I would walk through so angry, so mad that I would want to light all of them on fire. I just felt like a total foreigner walking down my own street. Now, the moral of the story is this. I missed a really good opportunity to start some sort of cultural campaign flag subscription where I could send, you know, you could sign up Republican, Democrat, this issue, that issue. I'm kidding. That's not the moral of the story. <laughs> That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is I felt like a foreigner walking amongst my own people. And maybe you're here tonight and you feel very similar. You don't know what you think about Jesus or Christianity necessarily, but you've seen these last couple of years and the way we've acted out in public. And if it's just about picking one side or the other, being political or not, well, then honestly, you're not in because that just sounds petty. That doesn't sound like a savior. And I just want to say I'm sorry. That is the church of Jesus... We have put on display that disunity is okay, and it's not. Not only have we put it on display, we have shouted it from the rooftops, and it is so 
unbiblical, and I want to repent because I have been a part of it in my ways. And it's not okay. It's not okay. But as Christians in America, we do not fit. We shouldn't fit. You should not feel completely comfortable in one tribe or the other. We need now as much as ever to look radically different from the American dream. We need now as much as ever to look different from the nationalistic pseudo-Christian facade, from our neighbors who practice a multitude of spiritualities, from secularism that rejects any sort of truth, and even our friends who love Jesus but hate the church. And not to spite anyone, not to shame people, Jesus is pursuing all of us. He wants all of us. But to be a witness of the alternative, that the church of Jesus can live in unity, it is meant for unity, and it will one day walk in unity again. That's how we need to live together wherever you land. Shane Claiborne talks about, uh, he's, an, he's this beautiful activist guy, but he talks about every time the early Christians said Jesus is Lord, they were essentially saying Caesar is not Lord. And that was radical in a robust, uh, torturous empire at the time where Caesar was God, essentially. And that's the kind of radical obedience you and I are called to live, not to dishonor and reject our leaders, but to recognize that all of them fall under the authority of Jesus. So whether you're a Jewish or Gentile Christian 2,000 years ago, or you're a student, or you're a mother, or you're a surfer in Southern California, and they're all a little bit different, the temptation has always been that if you would just bow down to the, the gods of this age, to these tribes or these people, then your life wouldn't be so hard that you can avoid suffering and you can live in the prosperity and the benefits of whatever human kingdom you've been promised, but it's to this moment, both 2,000 years ago and now, that Peter writes this letter where he answers our aching question. What does it look like to live as a faithful follower of Jesus in a culturally foreign land amongst your own people, maybe? You with me? Good, good. So his first encouragement is this. Your salvation is meant to be your hope and it's your joy. There are those passages in the Bible that if I'm just being honest, according to my flesh, I wish I could delete or rework. Uh, a, a very quick one that comes to mind is uh, Jesus says, take heart. Or have hope, for in this world you will experience sufferings, but I have overcome them. Personally, I would like it to say, have hope, I already overcame them, you will never experience them. What can I say? But even, that shows you my sinful nature right there. But even beyond the encouragement of Viktor Frankl, who we talked about earlier, Peter and Jesus call us to have a hope in our salvation when we suffer. Peter calls it a living hope. Verse 3, if you want to put that up again, Ashlyn. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept for you in heaven. 
this salvation we've experienced or received from Jesus, it'll never perish. It's sturdy and it's strong. It's built on a foundation that is meant to last the ages, no matter what storm hits it. This salvation that Jesus has given us, it will never spoil. It's not good one day and bad the next. And this salvation will never fade away. It is your eternal reality as a follower of Jesus. Christian hope is meant to be set on eternity and influence how we live now. Not because we're so nervous about whether we'll make it into heaven or not. Jesus done that for us, thank him. But because we so believe in the redemption of all things through Christ that we live as ambassadors of that redemption and reconciliation on this world as his partners in the gospel. So we're meant to be fixed on eternity. At a conference I was at a couple weeks ago, John Tyson said, um, in this age of secularism, we've exchanged time for eternity and body for soul. We've exchanged time for eternity. We would so much rather experience it all now. We'd rather have our time the way we want it people we want to see, how we want to see them, give it where we please. But we have a whole eternity waiting for God. We've, cha- we've exchanged the body for soul. It's all about the body. And don't get me wrong, the body is a very important piece to our faith in Jesus. But it's so much more about keeping it healthy and good and experiencing all the pleasures you can possibly experience in your body, yet we neglect our soul that in space and time holds the presence of the living God and will for all eternity. So in light of this eternal reality that is far more compelling than the bumps and the bruises, at this moment, Peter encourages us, have a living hope in Jesus. Be patient, people. If you wait on him for a thousand more years, be patient, people. Be loving people even when they spit on you, when the world rejects them, Give them, give them your love back. Now, we believe that Peter, again, was writing to Jews and Gentiles, and this is where I, I really start to find us, Genesis, in this story together. It's easy to understand why he'd write to encourage the Jews, right? They are a foreign people. They're living in a land that's not theirs. With a, That's very Southern, theirs. A people that aren't theirs not like them. I'm from Kentucky. Uh, They are eating food that their palate is not even familiar with. It is understandable why Peter would write to them to encourage them to rejoice in their sufferings as a physical exile. But then you have the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, they weren't Jewish before meeting Jesus, so they didn't have any former um, experience with Yahweh. They didn't They didn't um, know the religious laws and customs, etc. But they came from, you imagine it, you guess it, you probably can't imagine it. It was things like worshiping the moon, a pantheon of sun god and water gods, bowing down to Caesar as Lord. They came from things like I, well, I mean, one that comes to mind, for example, is a, a centurion who would have had the blood of Christians on his hands. Or the exploitation of the weak and vulnerable in an empire. I think of sexual forms of worship that, that were very common in the day. That's what they came out of. And when they started walking with Jesus, 
Where'd they go? Where'd they go back to? Home. The same cities, the same people, the same food. Except this time it didn't seem like they really wanted them back. They weren't welcome anymore. Their neighbors wrote them off. Their families became their enemies. You're not in our camp anymore. You don't, what we do. you don't believe what we believe. You're not in our tribe, so you're our enemy. Does it sound familiar to anybody else? It's a life we live. So what do you do now? What do you do when you start following Jesus and I guess it seems like your life falls apart? Well, you're, you rest your hope in Jesus and you rest it in the salvation that he has given you. And we rejoice even when the world spits on us, even when they reject us. I don't even know how to preach this half the time. That is so subversive. But he encourages us, rejoice in our sufferings. Are you with me? You there? Okay. He encourages us, rejoice in our sufferings. Now this was really amazing. I, I credit Wayne Grudem for this one. He says that the Greek word used for rejoice here is not used at all by secular Greek writers. In fact, it's almost solely used by biblical writers. Now, why is that important? You'll see, but I think it is completely foolish to anybody else. Here's why. This word rejoice, to rejoice in your sufferings, is the same word that Mary uses in Luke 1 when she finds out that she will bear the Son of God in her womb, that she'll be the mother who carries the redemptive love and power and grace of Jesus. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Remember that she was a young single woman and she would have known that her society would completely ostracize her. It's the same word that the Philippian jailer uses uh, when in Acts, uh, you'd remember Paul and Silas are in prison singing songs of praise and the prison begins to shake and the doors let open. And the prison guard, the Philippian prison guard, wakes up and realizes, oh my gosh, everyone's escaped, but they haven't. And Paul and Silas are there, and they sit with him, and they go to his family's house, and they share a meal with him. And do you know, moments before, he was ready to put a sword through him, because he would rather be dead than experience the shame and the punishment of having failed. But then he rejoices because he and his whole family were saved by Jesus. It's beautiful. And then this word rejoice is the, is the equivalent to the Hebrew word that King David uses in Psalm 51. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now, a little context around that one is that David had just slept with a man's wife, got her pregnant, felt really guilty about it, so he sent her, her husband off to war to be killed just to cover up his shame. So those are three instances we see this form of rejoice being used. Now stick with me because this to me is one of the most radical virtues of a Christian living as exile amongst their own people. And here's why. Peter's saying you will experience many trials in your life. 
But may your response be like Mary when she learned she would carry God in her womb, the one who would restore all things. Rejoice when you experience them. You may feel like a complete exile among your own people because they reject you and want nothing to do with you. May your response be like the jailer whose life and family were saved by the transforming salvation of Jesus. Rejoice. It's beautiful. It's radical. And then there's David at his very lowest. And you've probably been there too, at your very lowest, where it really hurts. And it's going to take a lot of time to grieve. Might have been an abusive situation, a divorce, a rejection, scathing words spoken against you, lies and falsity spoken against you. It's going to hurt. And it's going to be painful on every level, but God will expose the woman or the man beneath all of that that he truly created. He will experience that. I am amazed by the men and women in my life who have walked through hell and back and the stories that they have and the beauty they have for life because God has exposed their true self below all of that. I think when I tell this story, I think of uh, Who Likes Chronicles of Narnia? like it. Uh, I like the movies a lot because um, I've only made it through like one of the books, so all you fanatics, sorry about it. Yeah, I can tell. You probably grew up in Calvary, didn't you? <laughs> that was kind of mean. I love you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, all of that to say, there is a moment when, when Eustace, uh, he's this young boy, he gets turned into a dragon, which I get would be a dream for some of us, but eventually not for him. He becomes a dragon, and he is essentially exiled from the human experience he was meant to live. And after being a dragon for so long and not being able to do what he's meant to do and be with the people he's meant to be, there's this dramatic scene where he's doing everything he can to get the scales off of him because maybe, just maybe, Eustace is still under there somewhere, and he's trying, and he's getting nowhere, and it's not helping, and then Aslan shows up. And Aslan looks to him and says, I can get those scales off of you. If you want them off, I can take them off, but it's going to hurt bad. I'm going to have to go deep and get all up under them in order for Eustace to be Eustace once again. Guys, when you are in the bottom of the bottom of the bottom and you are longing for the day, you will rejoice in your salvation again. May you rejoice now that Jesus is committed to you being the person he created you to be. Walks with us in our dirt, sits with us in our dirt. He is committed to you being the person you were created to be. And I know what it's like to feel like there's absolutely nothing beyond this moment. I watched my parents' marriage fall apart when it didn't have to, but because my dad could not get off drugs. He couldn't do it. I remember the morning I found out that my dad was killed by basically accidentally jumping over 200-foot wall straight to his death. All I ever wanted was a future of father and son together. I never really got to know him that well. My stepdad tried to kill himself in front of me. 
There was nothing beyond this moment for him. And I've gone through serious seasons. Some of you have walked with me through it, of depression where I was almost positive that God was some man-made idea and I was just left alone in this universe to fend for myself. And that's a very frightening thought if you've ever been there. I know what it's like to feel like there is nothing beyond this moment. And I imagine you do too because you're human. Because we will all face moments of despair that are too dark and too deep for words, and even our spirits struggle to utter a groan. It hurts. And it's the reality of our lives. It's not fatalism. It's just true. That there are moments of joy in our life we didn't even know possible. Two for me were the moment I walked down my aisle at the wedding, and then when Haley walked down that aisle at our wedding. And you can ask anybody there, I was weeping like a baby. I did not know I could feel joy like that. But very truly, there are moments of suffering in our life that hit us like a death blow from a train when we weren't even looking. We will experience those. But maybe you're starting now to understand why secular writers didn't use this form of rejoice because it was completely foolish to them. If there's nothing beyond this life, for sure sex, drugs, and rock and roll baby. 100%. If pain and suffering is just negative equity and time I'm not getting back, then hell with that. I want nothing to do with it. Get me away from it. But that's why as Christians, we can preach a theology of suffering because our Savior was the son of suffering. Because he experienced the greatest human rejection you could ever possibly fathom. He got lead-tipped, whipped in his side to pull out his skin off his ribs. He got spit on. He got crucified alive, probably naked, and left to hang for death. But do you want to know if there's anything on the other side of your sufferings? Jesus showed us. There's rejection. Resurrection. <laughs> there is resurrection on the other side of your sufferings. That's all. <laughs> Man, blow a serious moment. There is resurrection on the other side of your sufferings. And I just want to say, as a people who have our hope set on eternity, Genesis, we do believe in the bodily resurrection of the church. This, is, this life is not it for us. Is there any meaning in your pain? Well, Peter promises us from experience that walking through all of your pain will create in you an enduring faith that can walk through anything. But you have to walk all the way through it to know God will walk all the way through it with you. The only way you can learn to rejoice in your sufferings is to walk all the way through it and look right to your side once you go all the way through and say, wow, God was with me the whole time. It sucks, but he will walk all the way through it with you. And none of this is meant to dismiss the pain and the grief or the trials that you faced in your life. Not at all. They are very hard. They are very serious. They really hurt. But it does, and this is hard to preach, 
especially people our age. I've really been struggling with this. It does minimize their power in an eternal perspective. That the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of humanity, the wretchedness that our sin and our sufferings can bring, they are puny compared to the glorious riches of God and to the living hope that we have in eternity with him. It's so beautiful. So I am actually over on time, but I'm pretty much done. So what can we learn from Peter? What can we learn from him in in this first chapter? Well, I think we need to remember that he's the one, Peter is the one who rebuked Jesus for talking about suffering. He's the one who ran from the cross. He's the one who got it wrong so often. He's the one who rejected Jesus. See, I think what Peter's saying here is that there's two things. There are trials in your life that you will walk through and they may have Not only will you walk through them, though, but like the generations behind you will experience the repercussions of them. And they have very little meaning or use in walking through other than in light of eternity, other than in light of the trust and redemption of all things, whether we see it in this life or not. But equally, and this is from Wayne Grudem, that there are moments in our lives where we walk through the fire and flame we meet the ocean floor of the human experience. We find ourselves lonely and isolated and rejected. Not because you necessarily did something wrong. Not because you didn't have enough faith. Not because God's punishing you. But these trials, they burn away any impurities in our faith. And what is left when the trials have ended is purified, genuine faith like pure gold that emerges from the refiner's fire. Genesis, you've heard it said, run from your sufferings, run from your pain, run from exile, run from persecution. But Peter says, rejoice. Rejoice. As I end, and we're going to have some time of prayer and worship and ministry after this, so we can just all encounter the Lord together. Recognize his presence right here, Jesus. As I am, there's just four things that I want to encourage us into. Seriously, you guys come up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's not, it's quick. There's four things that I want us to process through. The first is this. Do you know what you're living for? Do you have a meaning and a hope in your life beyond yourself? Is it for notoriety and status and a bigger me and more power, or is it to partner with Jesus? Is it to stay as far away from suffering as possible or to hold tight to God through all of the suffering? Is it to experience as much pleasure here and now or the promise of eternity? That's number one. Number two, tell your story. Don't do this life alone. Don't do your sufferings alone. One of the things that really struck me as I was studying this week is that I found out the bulk of the Old Testament was written during and after exile. So what does that say? It means that when they were in their darkest and lowest moments, wondering if God was faithful, they wrote their story. Don't forget who we are. Don't forget what God actually says. Don't forget what he says about you. Don't forget what he says about himself. And aren't we the same? 
We need the story of God to be present in our lives. So share your story with one another, period. And the third is very much on the same breath. Bear the burdens of your community. You might not be in the depth of the depth of the depth right now, but I promise you there are people in here and not in here who are. Take a moment to get to know them. Walk with them. Sit in the dirt of their sufferings, just like Jesus does. You don't have to fix it. You probably couldn't. Let Jesus minister them, but be his hands and feet by sitting there with them. And then the final one is this. We're going to have a time of prayer and response, and Dan's actually going to lead us into that. Um, But I specifically, I'm going to be over here, and I want to pray for those of you who have felt like your sufferings are because you don't have enough faith in God, who felt like maybe God's abandoned you or doesn't love you, who have felt like maybe if I would have just done this, then he would have shown up. I don't know the specifics, but I do know that I found myself there quite often, and I just want to pray for God's Holy Spirit to come and minister to us. So, Dan, why don't you come up and just lead us into a moment of just responding to the Lord together?